Welcome to Reasonable Doubts, your skeptical guide to religion. Welcome to Reasonable Doubts, the radio show and podcast for those who won't just take things on faith. Coming to you from Grand Rapids, Michigan, where Christ the Lord has risen today. Hashtag not intended to be a factual statement. You can find us online at www.doubtcast.org, or those of you in West Michigan can listen to us on Public Reality Radio, WPRR, Ada, Grand Rapids, and W237CZ, Hudsonville, 1680 AM and 95.3 FM or streaming live at publicrealityradio.org. My name is Dave Fletcher. With me in the studio are my fellow Doubtcasters, teen pop sensation Justin Schieber. Hey, I uh, just made a purchase. You did? Uh, the second edition to the Zombie Survival Guide. Oh, yeah? Yeah, you, have you guys read that? I, I, I haven't. Uh, well, the first chapter is uh, the Gospel According to Matthew. Nice. Uh, happy Zombie Jesus Day. And, of course, we have Dr. Professor Luke Galen here. He is risen. Jeremy Bean is off. He's currently hiding in Mombasa in a bar room drinking gin. Um, for our listeners, I should mention that we are recording this episode on Easter morning. That's why I said he's risen. You're supposed yeah. to say he's risen indeed. He is risen indeed, yes. <laughs> um, and I know... I just meant that I woke up today. So today we will talk a little bit about um, some of our recent holidays, but first, we've got a couple of updates in the continuing Catholic sex abuse scandal. Mm. And continuing. And, and continuing, continuing and continuing. And um, one news item that's kind of positive, and we'll get to that next so we can leave the sex scandal on, on more of an uplifting note, but... The most recent information about a um, major uh, instance of abuse uh, comes to us from uh, up there in Sarah Palin country in Alaska. St. Michael's, Alaska. Which is, I, I believe, even further north than Sarah yeah, Palin that's, country. That's like only a couple hundred miles from the Arctic Circle. And uh, this story is... You can see Russia from their... Just, just literally from their staff. It's, like, right. it's right across the Bering Strait. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> um, this is um, a case where a lot of the native Alaskans were um, in, in a remarkably high percentage were the victims of abuse um, by a, a Catholic priest. Yeah, there were some cohorts where this, the children, when they were growing up, you know, I mean, part of it is that it's a fairly small a village, but there were gener right. whole generations where this, the figure they quoted on the uh, on the show, this is on Frontline, was mm -hmm. uh, was uh, eighty percent had been abused by the yeah. priest or the priest's assistant. Right, right, and and again, small village, isolated, which makes this sort of thing much easier. You know, they're they're kind of cut off from the rest of the world. And there's some evidence that the priest knew that and exploited the fact that the uh, the isolation would lead to the who are you going to go to, basically. One of the girls right. was exactly. quoted the priest as saying, you know, I'm the voice of God. What are you going to do? So, uh, you know, it took a while for this thing to break out. And, and, for the, uh, and again, there was a, p a pattern of delay from the church hierarchy and the bishop and finally acknowledging that, right. getting the offender out and then apologizing. Yeah. 
to these people. But so. this was another one of these cases, right, where they had taken a, a, a priest that had a questionable history and shoved him someplace else where he could work with children once again. And, yeah, there's uh, several. Yeah, yeah. Um, same old story, um, but it doesn't make it any less uh, disturbing and tragic and heartbreaking. It's really good, and by good I mean well done, but very um, disturbing episode of Frontline that you can I, watch on. God, I love Frontline. I love that whole show. I love every every episode they do. But yeah, that's like good old fashioned journalism. Yeah, which um, I wasn't aware still existed in this country. So you no, know, good it's... for them. Good for them for doing mm-hmm. that. Um, the good news, if there can be any good news in a case like this is uh, Joey Ratz and a couple of his higher-ups have been served with papers relating to the Wisconsin court case. This is kind of amazing. Yeah. Now, whether or not anything will come of it, I don't think they're actually going to appear in court. There's the whole diplomatic uh, immunity thing, is it? Because they're considered a foreign entity. Right. Some people consider them that. Some well, yeah, the Vatican is technically a sovereign uh, sovereign state, but um, a, the Supreme Court denied um, taking up a, a court case, um, an appeal by the Catholic Church um, that would have prevented um, taking to task people like um, Joseph Ratzinger and other higher-ups in the Catholic Church. The Supreme Court didn't hear that case, which means the lower court ruling stands, which was that you could, in fact, at least serve, um, whether or not they actually have to appear, but you could serve the Pope, anyone in the in the Catholic hierarchy who may have been responsible in um, in the conspiracy to cover up sex abuse. So there is. There's some hope here that if this case continues the way it's going, that we could actually open up the the gates to have more lawsuits filed in the United States against uh, the Pope and other right. co-conspirators in the cover-up. Right, and and for those of you who uh, who might not remember uh, what this the case that this is actually referring to this is back in the the in Wisconsin the early 1970s right where you know they're they're accused of like molesting like 200 or so F- father uh, murphy right yes father yes. murphy and uh and then in uh, 1974 it came across um benedict's desk who mm-hmm. was not pope at the time of christ right, right. and rather than actually do the right thing and and deal with this in some uh, some just manner. He just moved them along, and so yeah. So that's the reason why the why these uh, people are right, right. And we talked about this back oh last summer I think on the the episode scandal. Um, we mm. talked quite a bit about the the Murphy case, but yeah. Again, if you don't remember, this is the priest who in Wisconsin um, was in charge of a school for the deaf. And is accused of molesting some 200 students at school mm. for the deaf. It's yeah. not getting the kind of coverage that it perhaps deserves. 
when the Pope is being served uh, right. court papers. Well, but, when it said served, I had this fantasy like of the, uh, you know, in, in court papers, you have to actually physically present to the person, which sometimes yes. you have to do like evasive things. So in my mind, I had this fantasy of like, they get, you know, he avoids all this uh, personal attention and is guarded by people. But then one day handing out wafers, somebody is like, has their tongue out and then hands the document <laughs> into his hand with a wafer. And it's a, you, you've been served. Yeah, yeah. See, I was picturing a, a teenage dance competition in a warehouse. <laughs> or that say, scenario. You've been served, <laughs> That's a generational gap uh, with the term, <laughs> with the verb to serve. There you go, folks. Language changes. That's right. That's right. Um, so we'll certainly be following this story as it develops. Now, um, every once in a while, we like to respond to some of our listener feedback on the show answer your questions and so forth. Get defensive. Get defensive, which is what we're doing today. <laughs> um, because, of course, nary a crossword can be said about Dr. Professor Luke Galen without him wanting to respond. With a team of lawyers swooping down <laughs> and holding them liable. So we got a, a comment on our blog in regards to the most recent episode, um, which was a special episode, your presentation um, that you did at, at Grand Rapids Community College. Yeah, for those people who uh, who didn't see it, this was on the topic the, uh, of well, I've addressed it on, across several different episodes, but on like things like the more, where morality comes from. So I discussed like the right. Jonathan Haidt's model of the uh, five different factors of morality, and um, and then also compared religious and non-religious people on different types of morals. But uh, the the reason I wanted to mention this was not just to be defensive, although I'm sure that's my underlying motivation. But right, the right. listener point, uh, asked something that I've also received when that was published. I got a bunch of emails too from my rate people, and this is a common mm -hmm. theme as well. Right. And that was that in the talk that I had pointed out that there was a gap. Uh, I guess you could call that hypocrisy, but there was a gap between people's moral attitudes and their actual behavior. And uh, to the extent that many religious people say, you know, for example, that uh, divorce is wrong, but yet they get divorced. But they get divorced in, in, in rates numbers, equal or so. higher to than, yeah. Right, or but, the consumption of porn, like. <laughs> or pornography. Right, right. So the, um, uh, uh, so the, the, the listener posted a comment, and, and again, I've heard this from other people too, taking issue with by saying basically, of course, there's – the, the listener says most Christians will admit everyone sins and fall short of moral standards mm -hmm. that they try to follow. That doesn't mean their goals do not influence greater society. I guess I wanted to clarify that. I wasn't trying to say that that, that gap was unique to religious people and right. non-religious people didn't. I think I mentioned somewhere in the talk of studies that show that everybody has a self versus other, mm -hmm. basically a holier-than-thou right. complex where they they condemn other people more for the same behaviors that they right. allow themselves to get out of. Because they can justify their own behaviors in their head. Everybody does yeah. that. Yeah. yeah. Well, I guess but my, not me. <laughs> right, but not me. Right. But the point, not us. But the point I was trying to make, though, was that being or having Viewing your morals as coming from a transcendent source like mm -hmm. the God or the Bible makes that gap worse when in combination with the stereotype of religion being equated with morality. So, for example, in our country, people – I talked about this in the talk that people assume that in if you are religious, you must be more moral. My point mm -hmm. was that if you have that – if you acknowledge that stereotype, which my studies like the Jesus Fish study showed that religious people do, um, that it – it promotes a certain moral blind spot where you say, 
uh, I guess I must be moral because I'm religious. Right. That right. non-religious people don't do to the, as great an extent. Mm. And that was my point with that. But then they also, the, the listener also talks about the issue of relativity of morals. He says in my talk, uh, loses, uh, Galen loses me on where or when exactly morals are defined. And then he uses an analogy of think highway traffic. Speed limits are the authority, but routinely ignored. Does that invalidate them or undermine their stated purpose? When one measures traffic, is the rate of speed due to the speed limits or the individual actions of drivers based on the learned norms? Uh, so he, he mentions that as an analogy. And I thought about that, and uh, I didn't actually say that there was a, a source of morality outside societally agreed upon norms. Right. I mean, right. like evolutionary psych would say that we have instincts or things like that. Of that the Using the speed limit analogy, uh, the reason that's flawed is because um, if – here's the analogy – using his analogy, mm-hmm. uh, I can riff on that by saying if people – if you believe that God sets speed limits right. or that God uh, – and that the reason we shouldn't speed is because God says so. Or whether you are secular and believe that speed limits should be set by the government because we've agreed that things like safety or gas mm. mileage or whatever, that bo- everybody's going to speed more than what they say they will. So like I mentioned, there is a hypocrisy gap, religious, non-religious, both people right. will speed in my example. But you don't see secular people saying, I can evade this speed limit because I have special dispensation from God to do so. <laughs> as, but they don't have that as a, as a rationalization, whereas you routinely – See religious people saying in this analogy, oh uh, yes, most people shouldn't speed, but God told me I could in this instance, or right. that, or that there are high, laws higher than the governmental laws. You see that all the time, where I'm going to disobey this because God's law is different than the speed limit laws. Well, well, justify. I mean, to the extreme of justifying murder and that sort of thing, because God said right. it was okay to murder the non-believers or, or so forth. To you know, lesser. Lesser crimes. Right. Whereas when you have a secular reason by saying we shouldn't speed because it, it could hurt people, and there's evidence that the higher the speed limit, the more people get killed with accidents and it wastes more gas, that makes it the province of now we can talk about it. Right. That there are, there's empirical data we can refer to that. So where do speed limits come from? And using that analogy again, uh, they don't come from anywhere. There is no set thing about how fast you should drive. As if you've ever been on the German autobahn, you know that. Right. <laughs> the, the speed limits are a necessary extension of the the, the nature. Yeah, we agree of... upon that. Right? <laughs> that we right. establish what a limit should be. There's no like set in stone thing about what they should be, but we do because we debate about well, this is the figure we arrive upon. Right. To summarize, the, if the listeners ask you, where do your secular morals come from if it's not from a transcendent source, there is no transcendent source. But that doesn't mean we can't arrive upon a solution that's the optimal one through right. debate, evidence, uh, societal agreement, right. and that kind of thing. And, and if, if it is a transcendent standard, the standard maker, you know, if if the local governments or whatever are establishing the speed limits, but yet the officials of the government are speeding all the time. Right. Sorry. <laughs> there's nothing really um, – yeah, there's there's problems there that need to be sorted out before you can criticize us or for that. My translation of the speed limit says 70, but his says 65 because it was translated incorrectly <laughs> and it was printed It's the in King there. James translation. <laughs> now, Justin. Yes. A couple of episodes back – on the uh, uh, Sacrificial Lambs episode, which I believe episode was... Episode 81. 81, two episodes back. Right. Um, you talked quite a bit about um, about sacrifice mm-hmm. and the role of sacrifice in uh, Christianity. 
Right. And we got um, we got some feedback on that, including one listener who it offered a um, rather lengthy, rather lengthy, but but I thought well um, thought out response. I mean, he wasn't just spouting off. I didn't think. Right. I thought right. It was, he he had some intelligent uh, questions. He had some good responses. So yeah, I got my first critical email response uh, from a from a, a gentleman named Aaron, and I want to make it clear that uh, I'm actually I'm I'm sure we are all very appreciative of our our Christian listeners. Anybody willing to you know mm-hmm. challenge themselves like this, I think, uh, earns our respect in that way. Um, so he begins. As a Christian listener, I feel a bit responsible to offer up the other side of the story concerning your Sunday school lesson about the atonement on, a, on episode 81. My fear is that your listeners will regard your musings as good enough and not look into what the Bible really does say. Uh, you assume that if the Old Testament points to a coming Messiah who would sacrifice himself, Israel would be expecting it and would know that the current sacrificial system was only temporary. Problem is, is I I never made that claim. Right. Uh, it could easily be the case that they were in the dark concerning these matters. Mm-hmm. Uh, the passage I read, and which contains the word permanent three times, was in Leviticus, and this was from Moses, of course. And Moses got these were apparently the words of God. Mm-hmm. So if Moses receives these from God, uh, and and the only assumption I have to make here is that Moses is telling us correctly what God says, right. then the only error is on God's immaterial shoulders. It's not, I'm not, it's not my fault, essentially. You know, I'm just saying, I'm not making any assumptions here. I'm... This is the assumption that Moses made. Right. Which he got directly from God. Right. If, if you're believing the, yeah. the text. Um, secondly, he, uh, he goes on to say, uh, biblical scholarship involves interpreting the Old Testament by the New Testament and not the other way around. The Old Testament doesn't give us full insight into the New Testament. Rather, the New Testament gives us full insight into the Old. One might say one writes it to get around the difficulties of the Old. But <laughs> right. Right. And I guess uh, I just I don't see how this is the case. Uh, a good critical scholar does not assume the theology and interpret it through such a lens. Exactly. If he believes it, he believes it, and that's that's all fine and dandy. But if you're going to be a scholar, you must be able to be self-critical uh, and critical of your sources and let the text speak for itself. Uh, having a conclusion already set and then seeking to justify it after the fact is post-diction linguistic gymnastics, and it's not insightful, nor is it scholarly. Right. That was one of my favorite things when I was at uh, my, my Catholic college is my uh, theology prof kept saying, you have to read it with the eyes of faith. <laughs> well, yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. Speak, <laughs> speaking of the, that way. The, the resurrection and stuff, I was just talking the other day to a student who didn't uh, who had not heard that Jesus' words on the cross in Mark were, were taken from the Psalm 22, that when mm-hmm. he says, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you oh, forsaken oh. me? You know, says that people were casting lots for his clothes while he was mm-hmm. doing this. And that's from Psalm 22. If you, right. it's, it's a lamenting psalm, my right. God, and it starts off, my God, where you're so I was pointing that out to the person, and there, and I said, so probably what happened here is that the writers of Mark were looking for Jesus to say something on the cross and needed words, so they 
searched the and, scriptures uh, and, and plugged my in. Hands, that my wouldn't hands. have worked. Not it's so not poetic. And they, so they found a psalm of lamentation and put the words in his mouth and added the stuff about the casting from the lots because it was in the same psalm. And the right. listeners or the the person I was debating with was like, "Well, um, no, uh, the the." Jesus knew that that he would say that, or you know, God knew that he would need to say that, and that's why he wrote it in the Psalms. And I'm like, well, that, that's kind of a convoluted expectation <laughs> yeah. that you're dying on the cross, and you're <clears throat> here's my chance to now fulfill Scripture and quote God's what like, was quote written. Me, quote what was, me, yeah, quote me. <laughs> which is a more likely explanation? So this person, yes, could it have happened that way? Yeah, I guess. But which is the more likely which explanation? Which makes more sense? Yeah. yeah. But they're not looking for what's more likely. Otherwise, they wouldn't believe it in the first place. Right. Because <laughs> they're reading with the eyes of faith. Right. You know, they're, they've start, they're starting out with a conclusion. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so uh, the emailer continues, you're right that the focus of Passover wasn't atonement for sin. Uh, but the correlation to Jesus' sacrifice is very strong. The death plague of Passover night wasn't just directed at Egypt's sin, God made it clear that the Israelites would suffer too, would suffer the same fate if they didn't follow the instructions he gave uh, about putting the blood on the doorpost. Everyone was equally deserving of God's wrath as a sinful people, and the event showed how God could pass over right. people's sins through the sins. Even the children. Through, through the sacrifice of, of yes, the, the lamb. The, the infant children. That's right. Yeah, they were equally as guilty. Yeah. They can choose life. Absolutely lovely. <laughs> Uh, and, and he also, you know, he points out that Paul uses this terminology in uh, Romans uh, 3.25, uh, where it says, uh, because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. Mm-hmm. So I, it, it seems that you agree with me that Passover has nothing to do with atonement for sin, right. with actual atonement for sin. Um Passover was to celebrate God passing over the doors with lamb's blood on them as to not kill specific firstborn males because apparently God would not have known, would not have been able to tell Egyptians from Israelites, apparently. Uh, he's he's literally passing over their sins. He's literally saying, you don't have to be atoned right. for this, right? Right. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, you know, showing me another place where Paul mistakenly refers to Passover lambs as having atonement abilities mm-hmm. uh, is is not impressive, and it supports my point rather than yours. Um, he continues, it seems petty to me to say the atonement was at a different time of the year uh, than when Jesus was uh, than when Jesus died, mm-hmm. uh, and that is somehow a problem. What do you think would be a better solution, he asks? Uh, dying uh, dying once in the first month and then dying again in the sixth month? Is that really necessary when Jesus' death was enough to fulfill both rituals? Well, uh, my response to this is that it's it completely misses the point. Uh, there was no expectation for this fulfillment you speak of. Uh, it was, as I... As I um, quoted um, Leviticus 16:29 through 34, uh, it talks about how this is permanent, and it is very clear about this point. Uh, this system was permanent, and it was adequate. Uh, you could become clean of all your sins right. before God. And this is through ritual animal sacrifice and so forth. Exactly. Yeah. And so it was not necessary, and Jesus was not needed to, to make this uh one last uh, cleansing. 
So Christianity, I understand that Christianity keeps insisting that he was necessary, but this can only be repeated by ignoring the particular passages that I brought up in the earlier episode. Mm-hmm. In Romans three twenty-five and 26, uh, this is the emailer speaking, uh, says that says why this is necessary. Uh, he says, God had previously not held our sins against us, though through animal sacrifice, etc., but the penalty for our sins was never fully paid by the animals. Well, that's just not true, as I just stated. Um, so he didn't hold it against us, and yet by doing the sacrifices that he commanded people to do, it still wasn't enough. Right, which is weird. Yeah. yeah. Um, why <laughs> would you demand least. something but then insist that it's not a demand? Right. I don't know. <laughs> I demand I don't you know. pay Have me you ever $20. Been in relationships here? <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I demand you pay me twenty dollars, and then when you pay me twenty dollars, I say, "Yeah, but that's not enough." Yeah, I don't. Yeah. <laughs> so the emailer continues, and uh, as I said, this is a lengthy email, so I'm. I just want to address as many as much of the email as I can. Uh, in regards to the sacrifices being forever, he says, uh, "We see this all the time. A company contract sets precedence in place forever." Uh, there is no date on when the policies will expire. The only the only time they would ever change is if a new contract is accepted. God, or did God change his mind? Only if you want to say that God changed from offering an ounce of mercy to offering a ton of mercy. <laughs> when the new contract is so far superior to the old one, how short-sighted it would it be to accuse the boss of changing his mind? It's like when um, you give a public park to Benton Harbor in perpetuity <laughs> and then change it and say, no, here's a better deal. Let's make it a golf course that no one in the city can afford to go to. Only local people are going to get that reference. <laughs> Rachel Maddow was talking about it. This is a national story. Yeah, that wasn't. Look was it up, Benton Harbor, crazy. Michigan. Anyway. <laughs> so uh, my response to this is that if your boss cares enough to state Clearly, three times in that same contract, mm-hmm. and it seems a hundred percent sure. Uh, it seems like it really means it. Um, it is unlikely that forever would be stated three times, but really just mean let's keep it till something else comes till up, till something better comes along. Right, especially when you're dealing with someone who actually exists for eternity. Right. Now, if I say to you, Justin, I'm going to love you forever, what I really mean is until I die, you know? I know. And I love it every time you say that. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> it's in the contract. <laughs> so uh, it it does seem that God changes his mind. If, if this is what we're going to be talking about, God changes his mind. And I guess that's a way you could maybe get out of this. This is not the only time that the Bible has God changing his mind. So I don't see why we, why you wouldn't just use God changes his mind as a way to get out of this dilemma. Right. Uh, it seems completely uh, justified uh, as a defense at this point. You know, mm-hmm. um, It's probably the easiest way to get out of this. The listener then lists some prophecies that he finds compelling. Zechariah uh, 3, chapter 3, verse 8 through 9, chapter 12, verse 10, and chapter 13, verse 1. And then uh, he also throws in Isaiah 53. Uh, I looked up the the all those references other than the Isaiah 53 one, and those are really vague and not compelling. I mean, mm-hmm. this, this is just 
it's it's just not worth addressing. Nostradamus prophecies. Right. I'm they're they're definitely not worth uh, even addressing here. Um, but Isaiah fifty three, uh, I think deserves addressing. Isaiah fifty three. This is the this is the prophecy talking about the suffering servant. Mm. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, it talks about how he's um, pierced for our iniquities, and, and um, it goes. It it does seem at first glance, to be uh, pointing forward to a kind of, this kind of redemptive quality of this person's suffering and death, right? Uh, so kind this of painting is, the picture of the, of the crucifixion. Right. So read at a very surface level, I think it does, it does seem pretty compelling. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> the problem is, is that the suffering servant that's being referred to here uh, is actually... Um, it's actually specified who this is. Oh, in other chapters of and it's of Jesus, Isaiah. right? Oh yes, it actually says Jesus. Oh, okay. Yeah, Jesus of Nazareth. Here's his address. <laughs> yes, that's a prophecy I would buy. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, in Isaiah forty-one six, it says, "But you, O Israel, my servant Jacob, whom I have chosen, seed of Abraham, my friend." Uh, in Isaiah forty-four one, it also uh, names the suffering servant as a kind of personification of the nation of Israel. Mm-hmm. Um, and also um, calls him Jacob, because, you know, when Jacob was wrestling with God, remember right. that? And then God was pinned down, and the only way God could get under, get out from under that oh. is to sock Jacob in the hip. Yes, yes. Because God's a cheap, dirty fighter. Should have gone for the balls. <laughs> That's all I'm saying. <laughs> So uh, and so he because he uh, sees the face of God. That's the reason he gives them that the new name Israel. Right. Um, but so this is a. I mean, this is of course used as to to refer to that individual and to refer to the nation of Israel as a whole. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're talking about the suffering of of the nation of Israel, of the people of Israel. Um, now, some of the specific problems I think they run into uh, dealing with this passage is that. First of all, in uh, Isaiah fifty-two fourteen, it states, "So marred was his appearance, unlike that of a man; his form beyond human semblance." Mm-hmm. Um, I don't remember that being part of the crucifixion narratives, right? Except Mel Gibson's, possibly. <laughs> Dude was pretty beat up. He was pretty beat up. True. Isaiah fifty-three ten states that uh, that if he made himself an offering for guilt. He might see offspring and have long life. So it's saying, mm. first of all, long life. What? I mean, if this is going to point to, you would think that they would at least point the part where he he actually died and then he conquered death, right? Right, right. Uh, that of course is not mentioned. But this here. suggests just long life, yeah, which long is life. A, a very different thing to the ancient Hebrews. Not than eternal life, right? And I think that's relevant. Yeah, because it does seem to be just pointing to a regular mortal who is going to be blessed, right? Yeah, um, live a long, happy life. Right, and uh, have offspring. Where does this come from? Uh, the Da Vinci Code. There we go. That's what it is. <laughs> and if you read, if you read these surrounding chapters, there's 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 a handful of other issues that can't really be, uh, can't really be squared away with the, with the, with the typical Christology. Mm-hmm. Uh, in in fifty three ten, it states that but the Lord chose to crush him by disease. Um, unless disease is a euphemism for 
um, nailing <laughs> Jews to boards. Yeah. Uh, there's a problem there. Yeah, I would say that's a significant problem. <laughs> so, um, prophecies are what's the percentage rate? Has anybody actually computed how accurate the prophecy was? If you consider the oh. po false positives and false negatives, right. <laughs> maybe that's the empiricist in me, but you know. <laughs> <laughs> this prophecy is now 65% good. You should do that study. Well, yeah, it's not to be clear that, that it's study. a prophecy. It's it's all in uh it's all in the past tense. Right. So right. usually prophecies are saying there will come a time when right. you know the, this is this something day, that's going to happen not this right. is something that already did happen. <laughs> Of course, you can bump up your prophecy ac accuracy rate when you're in the present, looking at the past and writing the narrative. You can oh, actually get yeah, some more similarities. This is true. It. Sounds great. It's a little um, tip. You're writing prophecy. <laughs> That's right. And uh, so the uh, the listener continues. Finally, I'll conclude with what it means for Jesus' life to be a ransom, and for why the blood of bulls and goats isn't sufficient. And of course, we've already established that it was sufficient. That that was the claim that we were talking about. Right. Um, pointing out another contradiction is not is not impressive. Uh, and then he says, lastly, eternity in hell. He, he's, he's talking about you know uh, he's responding to you know how how could hell be a just thing, right? Mm -hmm. He says eternity in hell is the closest we can come to paying a penalty equal to the eternal offense to the nature of God. Uh, so the total offense of mankind over our history was equivalent to billions of people owing an infinite fine. The just payment for those sins needed to be something needed to be something of infinite value. Uh, the blood of bulls was hardly uh, we, 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 we would hardly fit the bill, and of course that's just not the case. But the problem with this is if we take this kind of eternal offense to God that needs to be justified, if we take this seriously, right. it doesn't make sense for Jesus to be in any way a payment to be able to an take adequate payment. Right. right. Uh, even if he's sinless, mm -hmm. it doesn't matter. It, it doesn't, it would never justify uh, eternal sin. Right. As in, of course, it's still going on. And we're talking eternal sin from everyone, uh, infinite sin, because we're all right. we're all infinitely sinful, according right. to the, the emailer here, if I'm understanding this correctly. We're all infinitely sinful and have been since the very first humans and will be till the very last humans. We're right. not talking billions. So God we're is... Talking Trillions upon so, trillions. Right. So God is up in the clouds, like super offended. Yeah. He's like, wow. Right. <laughs> so, uh, so if we take this kind of rationalization seriously, it seems that Jesus, if he is to take his our sins upon him, mm -hmm. needs to be tortured in hell for eternity. Right. Now, at the very least, I don't think any of us like that idea. And I don't think the listener likes that idea. Right. So maybe we should come up with a different reason for why, uh, for the, 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 the disproportion of sin versus uh, the, the payment method. But yeah. I like the Mr. Deity episode where he's trying to get the Trinity straight. So you're going to sacrifice, <laughs> you're me and I'm you. I'm going to sacrifice myself to myself to assuage uh, yes. my anger. Yes. <laughs> and there's nothing we can take for this? Nope. <laughs> Any medication or nope. <laughs> oh, such a great show. But yeah, so so Jesus's rough weekend 
is equivalent to right. um, in infinite amount of a uh, yeah. nigh infinite number of human beings to have existed. Which maybe even, I mean, I guess you could even make the point that if he died and just always was dead. Yeah. You know, if he stayed death, dead, then right? okay. But no, not even that. It's like the weakest payment in the world. Like they pretend to kill him and then he's back. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, he has one of the easiest crucifixions in history. Right. Normally, crucifixions lasted for days yeah. of suffering. He was up there for a few hours. Even if he went, and, and the argument I had always heard growing up Christian Reformed is that, well, if hell is bad for normal people, just imagine how much they amped it up for Jesus. Like, when Jesus got in hell, they turned it up to 11. It's like, <laughs> Why didn't, you, why didn't you just make the dial to 10? They increased, it, they increased his waterboarding then. This one goes to 11. Um, now I say it's time we move on for a little skeptical Sunday school. Which is actually related to our topic. Very much so. So back to the Passover. Back to Passover. Yeah, this week not only did we celebrate Easter, but um, Passover. I didn't celebrate either, unless you count the consumption of chocolate as celebration of a holiday. I, th I think that qualifies. Which I do. Um, <laughs> so let's let's actually start off by taking a look at the actual biblical account of the story of the first Passover, and the Exodus. This, of course, appears in the second book of the Bible, which is Exodus. In the Ten Commandments movie. So in now, so now sit back, and we're going to play Prince of Egypt for you. Yes. <laughs> oh, man. We'll talk about Prince of Egypt. So let uh, it be written. So let it be done. So the book of Exodus begins with the sons of Jacob. Jacob, Israel, right? The right. founder of, of, of... The guy who can beat God in wrestling. That's right. Almost. Um, <laughs> the sons of Jacob and their families um, moving to Egypt. Okay? And the families are the founders of the, the tribes of Israel. Right. As described in the book of Exodus, the first group is 70 people. These are the sons of Jacob and their families, 70 people. After that first generation died, the Israelites, which we'll talk about how that's kind of an incorrect term because there's no state of Israel at this point. Right, so, right. But that's, you know, I'm, I'm taking this from the um, NIV, so I'm not, I'm not going to fault the, yep. um, the facts on that. But uh, the Israelites, quote, were fruitful and multiplied greatly and became exceedingly numerous, so the land was filled with them. This is Egypt. But unfortunately for them, a new pharaoh who did not know Joseph, Joseph, um, his brothers, and his pretty, pretty coat, <laughs> came into power. So we have this, you know, a, another generation of pharaohs who now is unfamiliar with the original um, How many generations does it group. take to go from 70 to 600,000? <laughs> we'll talk about that too. even at like uh you know w without family planning and well that's that's why um um rabbits are a symbol of passover okay. i believe fertility symbols yes so the pharaoh um saw all these israelites filling up egypt and he said quote the israelites have become much too numerous for us 
Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous, and if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. He's really concerned about overpopulation. He's concerned about overpopulation. So according to Exodus, they enslaved these so-called Israelites, who were very numerous already. That's that's impressive to take a population yeah. that's already there in in large numbers and enslave them. Not impossible, but it's you know it's an impressive. You, you kind of have to be the only one with weapons, right? To get right. away with that. <laughs> um, there's also an edict from the Pharaoh to kill all the male Israelite children because they're populating so fast. We need to kill off all of the male children, throw them in the Nile. If you're trying to control population, shouldn't you kill the female children? Well, yeah, I was going to point out oh, the, sorry, the, the fault there. but uh, I'm just thinking. Yeah, you're absolutely right. From the hip here. Um, Moses, <laughs> of course, we all know the story of Moses. Moses is, is born and for, I believe, eight months his mother conceals him, which is a hell of a thing to do with an infant. And then, you know, she gets scared that he's going to be found out. So she puts him in the basket and floats him down the river to protect him where he's found by the Pharaoh's daughter. That sounds like Osiris. It very much sounds like Osiris. So he's found by Pharaoh's daughter. And then after the whole basket being raised by Pharaoh's daughter, Moses murders a man. He flees. He talks to a burning bush. He has his son's foreskin cut off and touched to his feet or yeah. genitals. Just pass it over. <laughs> pass it over, Dave. I, I, and I have to say, because I, I was raised on these stories, I, I know the story of Exodus, and I actually sat down and reread the whole thing. It is so much weirder yeah. than I remembered. I mean, literally... God decides at one point when Moses is coming back towards Egypt, God decides he's going to kill Moses. And it, it's just one verse. God decides he's going to kill Moses. So Moses' wife, who I had forgotten existed, quickly cuts off their baby son's foreskin and touches it to Moses' feet or genitals. Saved. And it's saved. <laughs> now, Dave, you might think you have you. it's your problem making sense of this. How would you like to be the script doctor for DeMille's movie? You know, it's like... <laughs> So what do you got for me? Well, listen, uh, we got the foreskin cutting scene and we got the – whoa, whoa, whoa. That's not going in the final cut, is yeah. it? Yeah. So, so we have this, this incredible story. Moses returns to Egypt and by using some magic tricks taught to him by a bush and using his brother Aaron as his mouthpiece because Moses is not a very good orator, mm. uh, Moses tells Pharaoh to let his people go. Let my people go. Exactly. Um, but, of course, then God hardens God Pharaoh's hearts. Yes. Yeah. It's not Pharaoh is a jerk. It's God makes Pharaoh a jerk. Which we won't even get back into the free will debate. But Right, yeah. I mean, it, it, exactly. <laughs> a, he, yeah, he's a, he's a sock puppet. Yes. <laughs> um, and then, which leads to, since Pharaoh won't let them go, we have the plagues. There's frogs and bugs and yada, yada, yada culminating in the death of the firstborn. So God just really wanted to kill all the firstborn, but he wanted to blame someone else. That he wanted everyone else to blame seems someone like else. It, doesn't like, it? Hey guys, it's not me. No, it's, <laughs> Pharaoh's being such a jerk. Let's kill their kids. Um, and as you talked about, of course, the Passover then is when um, Moses tells all of the, as they're referred to in the NIV, the Israelites, 
to um, smear the blood of sheep on their doorframe in right. any household that has the blood of sheep on it. So the angel can do a visual inspection. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> this one's good. Pass it. Yeah. Next. Because otherwise, like you said, he can't tell the difference between an Israelite and an yeah. Egyptian. Um, the angel of death is, is the... Yes, here. and then and he kills. So God can't even do his own dirty work. <laughs> no, no. He so then we get the murder of the firstborn, and in the night when all of the firstborns are being slaughtered, including Pharaoh's own firstborn, right? His firstborn sit, son. Sit, up, sit there and think about that. Yeah, like in the middle of the night. In the people movie, st- like just all these children dying. In the movie <laughs> scene, they're sitting there listening to the screams of families discovering their children. Yeah. Dead. Yes. Yeah. And this black smoke creeping on. Yeah. yeah when I saw that as a kid, that right? scared the it it's fluids out of me. It's terrifying, <laughs> right? So in the middle, of I went the out night, and checked, and during the commercial, I made sure I checked the porch. <laughs> we got some of that uh, Sheep's magic. Blood. Uh, Good. Sheep's blood. Good. <laughs> so. Then Pharaoh freaks out. He calls Moses and he says, get out, okay? I, I, I want you guys out. Please, I don't want any more deaths. Pharaoh I don't want my out. free will thwarted anymore. <laughs> yeah, <Please> exactly. <laughs> um, so then the, the Israelites take unleavened bread because, of course, they don't have time to let the whole thing rise. So mm-hmm. they're, you know, matzah. Um, and importantly, and this is another part that was uh, glossed over in my childhood, quote, the articles of silver and gold for clothing from the Egyptians. They loot the Egyptians and God softens their hearts really? so that they are willing to give all of their stuff. I don't remember that. Yeah. So they get, <laughs> they get their silverware. They get all of their, their nice stuff and get sent on their way. Okay. Wow. Now. The Bible says in Exodus, this is 430 years to the day since they first came to Egypt. 430 years. Which was how many people did they first arrive with? Again? 70 people. Okay. 430 years. And then it says that 600,000 men, that's just, just the men. men, armed for battle... So throw in women and children. Throw in women and children. We're approaching two million people. Cattle, you know. All, yeah, well, exactly. All the necessaries. And it says they brought all of their cattle with them. This is a huge, a mass, mass exodus. Quite a large undertaking with supplies, I would presume. Yes. I'm and, sure somebody's done the math of how many kids per family you'd have to have. I mean, those exponential growth rates add up. That's This is true. And, and this is, of course... The slave class who's able to um, populate this much. And, and it's easy to say, well, if there were this many of them, why didn't they, you know, overslo- overthrow their slave masters? And, of course, we right. can look. Hey, South Africa. Well, yeah, we can we can look at even the American South where the slaves outnumbered the slave masters by quite a bit. But, True. but there, too, there was very intentional steps made to prevent them from right. overthrowing mm-hmm. their masters, including – Bringing them people. isolated and, and yep. not letting them different parts from Africa, so they didn't speak the right. same language. English was the only only right. thing they all understood, and and they weren't educated in it. So, okay, you so could, yeah. it's possible. Give it's that. possible <laughs> that there are six hundred thousand of them, just the men, close to two million total, and they weren't able to overthrow the Egyptians. But as far as the the birth rate goes, in four hundred and thirty years, that's Damned impressive, okay? 
Uh, Bible also mentions, by the way, that they took <laughs> Joseph's bones with them. So mm. they don't have time to um, make regular to bread, bread. <laughs> but they will do some grave robbing on their way out. To-do um, list. Check off. Yes. Check. Get bones. You forgot the leaven? Yeah. <laughs> Look, honey, I've had a lot to do today because we're leaving. We should have we should have put that in the oven before we started cooking yeah. the bones. You know, priorities. So they they make it out of Egypt. They're in the desert, and then God hardens Pharaoh's heart again. It's too easy. Yeah. And this is when we get the story of, of the parting of the Red Sea, which right. is by many is believed to be a mistranslation. It's supposed to be the Reed Sea. That's pretty sweet, though. This is when yeah. in the movie when she rags on Yul Brenner, like, you're just going to let him go like that? Yeah. Right. And she taunts his masculinity. You're not a man. You're not even less than a god yes. or whatever. That's the reverse. But according to the Bible, it's God hardening his heart, yep. not not, uh, not the raggy wife, not the shrewish wife. I feel bad for Pharaoh. He probably got a lot of flack after that. Totally. <laughs> well, and then he sends his army um, against them, and it's With the, the chariots and all. The that. numbers are not given, um, but it's a it's a large army. Of course, if you're trying to recapture two million people, yeah. you got to send a big army. We can presume they got a substantial force. Yeah, and whether it's the Red Sea or the Reed Sea or whatever it is, the Israelites cross it, and then as the Egyptian army is chasing after them, the waters close up on them, and they all drown, okay? And then there are 40 years of wandering around in the desert because God pisses, or uh, because Moses pisses off God, by getting water from a rock when he wasn't supposed to. Hmm. And they would wander around for 40 years on the Sinai Peninsula. Going to different Going to different places. Which some of the resorts I've heard are really nice. But uh, <laughs> but other than that... And this is... I feel, yeah, I not, feel like I would want to pick a different place to wander. Not even two stars. <laughs> barely one star. But you got to keep in mind the numbers here. This is 40 years. Yeah. And the Sinai Peninsula is not a big area, okay? In fact, the one source I read said if you lined up all of the people that were in this mass exodus, according to the Bible, single file, they would reach from Egypt to Canaan. Really? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's, and that, you know, that's yeah. factual, whatever, that that may be speculation. Now, provision-wise, it's they not were, a big space. God was supplying them on the fly with the manna. Right, right. And they complained about the So they're being fed. Manna again for breakfast, manna for lunch, manna for dinner. That's right. So, um, and then, of course, eventually they make it to the land flowing with milk and honey, Cana, um, where the Canaanites live. They conquer them, destroying various cities along the way, including Jericho, mm -hmm. where the walls came tumbling down. And I. Yes. Um, and, and others. So that's the story according to the Bible. What do the facts actually suggest about this? Be did they found ample evidence that a culture of two million people have wandered throughout the Sinai Peninsula? Weirdly enough, no, they have not. In fact, Nothing. tools, uh, pottery. Well, let's 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 start at the beginning. Okay, let's start <laughs> with the beginning of the story, which is the Israelites in Egypt. I, we find, like I picture like a, a biblical archaeologist, like. Unburying or <laughs> you know unearthing this this little pot that says like Aaron was here or something <laughs> in like English. Unfortunately, <laughs> it's probably never that easy. No, no, it's not. Um, so we do have evidence that Egypt 
Egypt's population suffered a massive crash of 200 million people at some point in the past. We, in fact, do not. Um, Hmm. Starting from the very beginning, there is no account of enslavement of Israelites in Egypt. In fact, and um, Brian Dunning talked about this on Skeptoid in a very, very good episode. Right, right. The terms Israelite, Israeli, Hebrew, Jew, and Semite – Get often they confused. They refer to different things. They but refer a lot to of different them things. Are Israelites. Well, yeah, there's a lot of overlap. Israelites are people who come from the nation of Israel, which of course did not exist right. before they made it to Canaan and established Proto- the nation Israelites. of Israel. Yeah, okay, sure. Um, <laughs> Semite refers to anyone who speaks a Semitic language, which includes like Hebrew and... as well as um, Akkadian and and so forth, which right. was probably the root language Hittites? for the Hittites, and so forth. Um, and then Jew refers to people who follow the Jewish religion, right. which is in its infancy here, right? And then you it, have Hebrews. And then you have Hebrews. people who speak the Hebrew who language. Who speak the Hebrew language, yes. <clears throat> so, so it's difficult in a lot of ways to trace um, who was where when, right. but the earliest in- instances of... Um, of Hebrew people interacting with Egyptians is not as their slaves, but is in fact as their as, comrades in arms. As a garrison, as a um, in the second century BCE, uh, records show that the Jews act, had actually been sent to Egypt to assist uh, yes. the Pharaoh. Um, I cannot say that word. I'm just going to say uh, to assist the Pharaoh. But there we go. Yeah, and um, otherwise, the only other instances we have of interactions between um, the would-be Israelites and the Egyptians is those as trading partners. There's no mention of slavery. And, of course, the kind of the extra-biblical tradition is that the Jews built the pyramids, which is not in the Bible at all. There's no mention of the pyramids. Yeah, that's just an assertion. Um, It, It doesn't work. Now, one could always argue, I suppose, is that this this loss of, of you know this mass loss of slaves was embarrassing to the Egyptians. So that no one so mentioned they wouldn't it. want to record it, right? Right. But possible. Yeah, possible. I, I suppose we could just pretend that nothing would ever surface mentioning or maybe even implying, in right. some sense, population as well numbers. as right archaeological you know, evidence, exactly. which is which is the the big thing here. So there's. There's no mention of Jewish enslavement. In fact, as far as building the pyramids goes, we know how the Egyptians built the pyramids. And they're very proud of the fact that Egyptians built the pyramids. So when people assert, oh, the Jewish slaves built it, it's not only insulting to the Egyptians, it's insulting to the, the Jewish people who, in fact, were comrades of the Egyptians and trading partners instead of just their slaves. So it's it's really right. It's a really insulting assertion on both hands, which does not come from the Bible. Not, okay? not to mention that, uh, you know, even you know, if, if of course we accept that the Egyptians built the pyramids, right? Uh, the other factor is whether they were slaves or not. And yes. actually, we have a lot of good reasons to think that they were not slaves. No, it was it was maybe forced service. It was during the the part of the year where the farmers didn't have crops to farm. They would. They would 
be sent to the city to help build the pyramids. Or if some of the government agents would come and say, your family has to give up well, one worker to meet your village quota. Exactly, or... yeah. So, I, I mean, it wasn't exactly a volunteer operation. Right, the Cairo these, area JCs. Are these, <laughs> these were people who lived in, in good housing, and when they died, they would be giving honorable burials. Yes, they were treated very well. I right. mean, for forced labor. Right, know? right. I mean, it's not exactly the job I would want, but they were treated well for their right. their role in society. So, um, not only do we not then have evidence of Jewish enslavement. We don't have any records of this mass exodus. And the, the Egyptians, we should know, were pretty good record keepers. We have a lot of artifacts from them, which, right. of course, doesn't mean that it didn't happen, just because we don't have right. evidence saying they that. They could be really, really good at, at, at Yeah, and, and there are parts the of Egyptian ones. history that we don't have a lot of information on. Right. But we also, things like the exodus and, more importantly, the death of all the firstborn sons in Egypt, that's mm-hmm. something that seems like it would be, <laughs> would make mention somewhere, Today some hieroglyphic something. Today the children died. <laughs> yeah. And there, there's no mention, which is, which is a fairly conspicuous absence of yeah, that. Yeah. No mention of the army being drowned in the Red Sea or Reed Sea or anything like that. It, it's true that, you know, absence of evidence isn't evidence of absence, but when it's such... Uh, a strange thing, yes. then I think it does qualify. And when it's such a enormous, yeah. enormous claim of these, you know, two million people, of deaths of children, of a large portion of the right. Egyptian army being wiped out in a single day. It's far more reasonable. Yeah, it's, I mean, you know, like the evidence of absence thing, it's far more reasonable to, you know, believe that it didn't happen rather than someone i mean no one wrote this down right what i find is that the uh some of the archaeologists some of them are jewish who happen to uh, know mm-hmm. the facts but then say that it doesn't matter, doesn't really matter. Uh, there's a quote from one on belief net that said <laughs> yeah. quote the torah is not a book we turn to for historical accuracy but rather <laughs> for truth the story of Exodus lives in us. Standing at the Passover Seder, I see in my mind's eye the Israelites marching out of Egypt, the miracles at the sea, and I feel enormous gratitude to God uh, for our people who have been saved, essentially. And I thought about the, the the thing with the – it's not intended as a factual statement. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. We turn not for historical accuracy but for truth. Right, as in, as in the historical existence well, of God clearly is, what, uh, is not really true. They're often worried if uh, many of the Middle Eastern scholars who are Jewish are worried that this undercuts their claim to the state of Israel, which is nonsense because you don't have to live in an area forever for it to be well, and, your area. And actually, um, I, I think it was Edward Babinski on, on his website, which is uh, – he has a wonderful article about this. I think he makes the point that it's actually a stronger claim um, to follow the archaeological evidence, which is that, in fact, the Israelites were in the area of Cana. And had always right. been. For, and had always been. Yeah. It's a much stronger claim to say, we've always been here, rather than Joshua showed up and escaped from this right. place right. and came and then here. We're this is a nice land of milk and honey. Get out. Yeah, exactly. That's a better claim. It's a it's a much stronger yeah. claim, and it, it's 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 kind of uh, it's kind of um, even more empowering because I mean, absolutely, uh, the archaeological evidence suggests that there were like small kind of 
pseudo-nomadic tribes right. that eventually came together. Yes. Uh, and that's kind of... A... But there's there's no mass um, um, influx of right. people into it's a, Cana. It, it's it a was gradual building of a nation. Absolutely. And an identity of a, a people. Which is... Which makes sense, but consider when this is being written down, which is when they are in exile in Babylon. Right, right, right. So, so this idea of we're an oppressed people mm-hmm. is important to them. Also, uh, there's one uh, Jewish apologist. Um, I don't know if you you read this link I sent you, but um, he's asked the question: How come there's no archaeological evidence for this? How do we explain that? And the guys. His explanation for um, how this is a true story is what people would make up a story about being <laughs> slaves. Why would they ever do that to make them sound like losers? And the con- one one of the commenters said, for the same reason, behind. people like the Mighty Duck series. <laughs> well, you're right. <laughs> we love an underdog. There is the underdog. And also, right. of course, the more important part of the story is God says to them, hey, there's this land that favorite. I'm giving to you because you are my favorite people. In his his role as a celestial uh, Exactly. <laughs> so it's, yeah. not, it's not them saying, oh, we started off as lowly slaves. It's them saying we were delivered from slavery by God, by God himself and told that this is our rightful land. That's what makes the story significant and important for, right. um, for the Jewish people. It makes you look pretty important when God picks you to be the special people he's going to guide. Exactly. Now, getting back to the absence of evidence, in the uh, Sinai Peninsula, which is not, again, not a very big area, there is not a, there is not a single shred of evidence of these two million almost people yeah. living there for an entire generation. Not a... Um, piece of pottery, not a tool, not a corpse. Nor you know? is there, uh, there... Nothing that can be now, dated Dave, to this I don't know if you read, period. but some of the source, apologetic sources say that one branch of the tribe of Israel's specific job was to yes. go behind and clean up. Oh, yes. Are you serious? Sweet, yes. yes sweep up any evidence. Absolutely. That Jewish, and it's not in the Bible, but Jewish tradition holds that one of the tribes, I picture, you know the, the intro to... Uh, um, Mr. Peabody's Wayback Machine, and you get the guy with the broom walking behind the circus. <laughs> no. Yes, that I, is what I picture this this tribe of. I Israel thought more doing. like a, our our campus has like a recycling crew <laughs> that goes around to make sure that right. everything's tidied up with your recyclables. But oh, they were so. Either you have to believe that there was this one tribe dedicated to cleaning up after almost two million people, and we're talking for a generation of people. They called the recyclites. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> Everyone who died, um, every pot that was dropped, every poo that was dropped, everything was cleaned up. You know those guys were really nagging on the guys in front, like, come on! The poo? (laughs) Well, and then, of course, the other argument is, yeah, but it's a desert stuff. Changes, there's sand... We found evidence from older in desert. Exactly. It's Mm -hmm. actually very well preserved there because it's a nice dry climate. Um, so that argument falls flat. And, 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 of course, you would want to establish some kind of motivation they would have for doing such a thing. Right, exactly. Like, why are they worried well, uh, about covering, up covering their tracks? tracks? 
Yeah, th- it makes no sense. <laughs> We've talked, you know, we always talk about on the show about things like with the big discrepancies with the Bible and hi- history, like creation, right. obviously the creation story, or like you know the Tower of Babel. But this one actually is even people who I know that are well educated and not particularly religious, they just because of the exposure to the Bible stories and right. Sunday school and the movie, they're like, really. They they accept this as a as a historical account yeah. because they well oh. why would you make it up? The other thing, and this to me as as someone who's a fan of linguistics, is a, a very strong argument against Egyptian enslavement is that supposedly they were there for four hundred and thirty years, right? Mm-hmm. Where their numbers grew from seventy to six hundred thousand men. Oh yeah, why would the are you saying you're suggesting that the Egyptians would would have to have embraced some of their linguistic tendencies? Well, what what there there would be crossover certainly. Right, right. I mean, there would be Egyptian carryover words in like right. Spanglish. It's, well, yeah, and, and <laughs> vice versa. And there's a mm. few, but they don't linguistically they don't trace that far back because it only goes back to as far as when there were actual interactions right. between they were they were a trade route so that's going to happen yes. in some sense so there's there's very even the catholic church admits that there is much fewer um, Egyptian carryovers into the language than you would expect for anything like that. Maybe we'll find someday an Egyptian inscrip- inscription that has like, you know, e- eagle eye, eagle water, oy vey, <laughs> wave, 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 eagle. So, uh, again, there is – we cannot prove a negative. We can't say this did not happen. But the fact that there is no direct evidence to suggest that it did it means that you have no evidence to believe it. <laughs> exactly. So exactly. Other than scripture. So on our shit list this week, we have. Um, Everyone's favorite Yosemite Sam-like preacher, mm. the Reverend Terry Jones. Um, he's the guy, and if you're not familiar with him, who um, burned mon- a Quran. Well, he was going to do a Quran burning during the whole 9/11 mosque debacle, which was not a. Then, under pressure, even mentioning from the highest levels of the Obama administration right. that he should put it off, and he did for he a did. while. And then he held a trial for the Quran and found it guilty, I believe, of of not loving Jesus. Something like that. Something like Did that. Did anything get to testify? Did he get to meet his accusers? Or I, yeah, that's a good. I want to know. Waterboarded it. I'm, I am uh, very skeptical. Of so he put the Quran on trial and then burned it. Burned it, which caused what's the de- what's the body count so far from riots? We have uh, um, there was it was like twenty. Initially, there was like there was like twenty, and, and I have a hard time saying. He's responsible for right, that because they're, right. they're clearly the riots were also infiltrated infiltrated by people who didn't like the the people in NATO and right, in, in right. Afghanistan anyway. Yeah, but, done by crazy. People. What what we have is a lunatic encouraging other lunatics to act like lunatics. Yeah. I mean that that's what it comes down to. His you know part of his argument is the the that Islam is a violent religion. Well, point made. You know. Yep. Um, Thankfully, most of the media here in the U.S. ignored Terry Jones this time until the Arab world started paying attention and mm-hmm. it led to riots, which led yeah, to the Yeah, they did a whole of, on the media of how the local journalists really have, have, 
kind of agreed not to give this guy any more attention than what he's worth yeah. and that it came in from external sources. Yes. But now he's in our backyard because in Michigan we – He is visiting a, Michigan, yeah. In Dearborn we have a large Arab American and, and uh, Muslim population and so he decided to show up and make a statement by – you know, uh, protesting outside a mosque. Yes, and he said when he was heading up uh, here to Michigan that he would come armed because, of course, he needs protection from those violent Muslims. And uh, after an interview at a TV station in Detroit, as he was walking out, he accidentally (laughs) fired off his gun, which just just makes even stronger Uh, the connections to Yosemite Sam. I think it actually propelled him off the ground a little bit. uh, (laughs) Bring in some of the south up to the north. Ooh, I hate them Muslims. Um, <laughs> Tarnation. So Terry Jones is here. And, and, uh, and he was, he was uh, they, they asked him to pay. Uh, he was re- uh, disturbing the peace, and there was an yes. ordinance that they asked him to have some token $1 payment to, mm-hmm. to, right. to stay out of jail. And, and, and out of principle, they, were, they refused, he refused to pay. And he was arrested. And then uh, two hours later, he decided to pay it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> didn't last long. Hey, when you're in, in those jail. cells, let me tell you, it's <laughs> when you're in jail in Dearborn and you're a big anti-Muslim <laughs> advocate, <laughs> it may not be the smart to stick around. Um, I bet he felt like Joseph Smith in there. He's like, oh, they're coming for me. <laughs> we also have um, one of our favorite reporters uh, showing up here again on the shit list uh, tangentially. Barbara Bradley Haggerty from NPR. We've talked about her before because she, I guess we could say charitably, gives very fair-minded treatment of all manner of claim from God's hmm. working of the brain, yes. God's God's working of the brain, uh, to now a, a miracle story. Yes, a child in Washington State who had a flesh-eating bacteria uh, on his face. It was right. rapidly progressing. And then it stopped. And then it stopped. And and after 30 surgeries, he now just looks fairly deformed rather than being dead, which is a good thing. Clearly evidence of divine oh. intervention because the devoutly Catholic parents attribute it to a intervention of a saint. So I guess when you're Catholic, you can ask not, saints to Not even receive. a saint, though. She, oh, sorry, yes. She's up for canonization, canonization, right? But there was a figure who apparently had similarities in the past. Because was, she was Native American. She was a Native as, American. And this, this young boy has, has Native American roots. Right. So they, they prayed to her um, because she's, uh, you know, like most Catholic saints and, and would-be saints, has miraculous healings in her past. So they prayed to her. And the infection stopped, and um, but before that, it was it was going extremely rapidly. Yes, and uh, it says here the doctors told Jake's parents several times that he was going to die. Yeah, which is the way his parents report. Because 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 you, you would need to know, you would need to have yeah. that repeated to you. Yeah, and that and that's <laughs> the way doctors typically work too. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, we should point out that. He had doctors. Yeah. He had very good doctors who were working very hard to make sure he didn't die. But lo and behold, prayers were answered and he didn't die. And so now this is being used to uh, as evidence of the canoniz- further canonization procedures for the saint because yes. the intercession must be the only reason why his infection was halted. Right. Right. And, and in the story, they, they quote doctors saying things like, I don't know why... <laughs> 
this boy's <laughs> infection would stop as opposed to someone else, but it did. I'm, I'm still waiting for them to find a doctor who's like, house. And, yes. and and all these reporters come out of the woodwork with microphones you that say, hey, <laughs> you're a patient. Can we interview you? We're doing a story from the miracle angle, and um, we need to interview saying, you know, that the, yeah. you don't know why it stopped. So roll cameras. And then the, the doctor would say, well, uh, he's receiving the best medical care that, <laughs> that we have. And they prayed, and the thing stopped. So yeah, it's 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 completely ridiculous. I mean, but it's still one. Of, it's one of those like arguments for God's existence on the basis of incomplete devastation, where like you know, right. plane crash, a hundred people die, one person survives, therefore God exists. Therefore God exists. Uh, his face is eaten and scarry, right, and scarred for life, but. It stopped, so... And he's alive. And, and let me just say, I'm glad this yeah. child is alive. This, right. is, this is great. And um, whether it was the uh, prayers or more likely his medical intervention that saved him, I'm, I'm glad. And if his parents want to think that it was their prayers, that's fine as long as they're still bringing him to the yes, doctor. Yes, exactly. Uh, it says uh, Jake went home after two months, and now five years later, doctors are still uh, rebuilding his face little by little. Yeah. So it's not as if, you know, prayers. Right. Miracle is he didn't die, but not that. It's not God as though he looks like Justin Bieber face. now. And he's, yeah. he's, he's, he's... Well, hey, maybe with, with our new cost-effective, cost-cutting measures, you'll have hospitals where they'll have, like, options of treatment. There's the prayer ward here. <laughs> Here's the antibiotic ward there. You choose, yeah, and we'll see what we'll see what line involved. people stand in. How about that? Yeah. Um, now, speaking of people in need of medical attention, um, last entry on our shit list this week comes to us from the Philippines, right? Uh, yeah. Where they take their Easter celebrations <laughs> seriously. Now you could do your passion play. And like in in Mexico, that you could have the actors playing the thing, and that the the Jesus usually does actually have to carry a two hundred pound cross. Right, that's arduous, and then they put them up and rope them to the cross. Yep. And what more could you ask somebody to undergo than being roped to a cross for a couple hours in a passion play? Well, you could actually put nails in their flesh, which is what they're doing in the Philippines. You can say what you want about uh, the. the wisdom of this, but you can't say that they don't go all out. Yeah, right. Take the, it to the limit. And it should be said that the the, the Catholic Church does not approve. Right. They're right. saying that uh, you know there's no redemptive value going on here. Yeah. It, and it's also important to note that these are volunteers. These are people yes. who are asking right. to be crucified. Right. You, you don't get up, show up for your acting gig, and say, "So what am I going to be doing today?" <laughs> well. There's actually, there's actually videos of this yeah. uh, where it shows people getting their uh, their their hands and their feet. Actually, did, did Mel Gibson take the videos? <laughs> Damn it, you beat me to it. Um, so let's wrap up today with some polyatheism, shall we? Well, not only did we... Um, Passover, Passover this past week, but uh, as of our recording today, it's Easter morning. So I wanted to take a look at some of the pagan roots of celebrations. Do you mean like that Easter. Easter is not just an invention of the Christians and the Passover tradition of the Are Jews? Are you telling me Jesus was not a bunny? <laughs> well, the pagan 
the pagan roots of the Easter holiday are pretty well known, I suspect, to most, if not all, of our listeners. Like Stravinsky's ballet La Sacra du Printemps, The Rite of Spring. Oh, yeah. Well, there you go. Oh, it's very pagan. <laughs> yes. Um, almost all of the trappings of the Easter holiday are, in fact, pagan and not Christian. Eggs, bunnies, even the name Easter came from the uh, pre-Christian springtime ceremonies. Uh, Easter, according to Bede, that's the venerable Isn't Bede. Esther or something? A-Esther. Yeah. It's one of those funny okay. letters. It's one of those right. ones that's hard pr- to pronounce in American. Um, <laughs> in American English. Yes. According to the venerable Bede, who is an early Christian historian, he's the one who actually came up with the timeline for the 6,000... Your your uh, um, history. He says that the term Easter comes from the Anglo-Saxon goddess Astro, uh, whose month was celebrated in what we now know as April. J- Jacob Grimm of the brothers um, was also a linguist, and he traced the name back further to pre-Christian Germanic tribes. And actually, it likely goes back even further to Proto-Indo-European goddess of the dawn. Okay, so this is That's we're going too, back quite a few steps here. That's a bit too early. Uh, or yeah, Ostra or Ostarta or Osus um, represent represented not only generic dawn but the annual rebirth of the sun in springtime. From the equinox. Exactly. Of course, Ostra is far from the only springtime resurrection deity. There's the well-known tale of Persephone in Greece, um, as well as a myriad of, of more stories of gods and goddesses who die or descend into the underworld round about to autumn, only to return to the land of the living in springtime. Does Dionysus count as one of those? He certainly. Uh, bringing with them pretty flowers, waking up animals from hibernation, and ushering in fertility of and, all kinds. And plastic eggs hiding in their backyard. Yes, exactly. Actually, colored eggs are part of the, the hmm. pagan tradition, too. Um, today, in keeping with some of the Old Testament themes from Skeptic Sunday School, I thought we'd take a look at one such god. Long before God sent his second firstborn son, his first firstborn son being the people of Israel, according to Exodus... There was a god worshipped by neighbors of the Israelites who died annually and was resurrected each spring. The Sumerian god turned Sumer-Akkadian god, Tammuz or Demuzi or Demuzi-Tammuz, even makes an appearance in the Bible. In Ezekiel 8, 13 through 15, quote, He said unto me, Turn thee yet again, and thou shalt see greater abominations that they do. Then he brought me to the door of the gate of the Lord's house, which was toward the north. And behold, there sat women weeping for Tammuz. Then said he unto me, Hast thou seen this, O son of man? Turn thee yet again, and thou shalt see greater abominations than these. And it's at this point that Ezekiel is pointed toward a screening of the Twilight movies. So those of you playing the... It's not funny. (laughs) So those of you playing the polyatheism drinking game at home, that's one shot for getting a biblical mention and three shots for being proclaimed an abomination. I hope you're pacing yourself, though, because we still have suggested incest, one shot, and at least one reference to a Lucas film, two shots. 
The women weeping for Tammuz, referenced in Ezekiel, was part of an annual ritual rooted in the tale of Tammuz and his wife Ishtar, or Inanna. She wrote, she had that awful movie. That awful movie with Warren Beatty and Dustin Hoffman, yes. (laughs) Inanna Ishtar uh, was the goddess of fertility, sex, prostitution, and other classic holiday elements. Uh, Demuzi Tammuz began as a simple god of shepherds who happened to win the affections of the goddess. So, fellas, if a guy in charge of a bunch of shepherds can get a literal sex goddess, there's hope for all of you. Mm. <laughs> there are multiple versions of the story of Ishtar and Anna and Demuzi Tammuz that appear in Mesopotamian liter- literature. In one, Inanna Ishtar descends into the underworld to see her sister Erishkigal, goddess of the dead. The accounts vary on exactly why. Perhaps she was tricked by Erishkigal. Perhaps she came with the intention of taking over the underworld from her sister. But for whatever reason, Inanna Ishtar heads for a visit, and on her way down, she encounters seven gates. And at each gate, she's made to remove one item of clothing, leaving her stark naked by the time she finally reaches her destination. This is like strip poker. This is weird. Yeah, very much so. <laughs> um, this is the mythic origin of the Dance of the Seven Veils, one of history's oldest strip teases. Once in the underworld, Inanna Ishtar is struck dead, either by Arishkagal or by one of her middle management team. Inanna Ishtar's corpse is then hung from a nail in the underworld, this is the mythic origin of elderly Michiganders going to Florida in the winter. <laughs> While the fertility goddess is gone, there's a real problem on Earth. Nothing is growing. No one is procreating. Sex is gone from the land of the living. This Aww. is a real bummer. Worse <laughs> than hell. Yes. Uh, luckily, Inanna Ishtar was smart, and before descending, she told her faithful servant, if I'm not back soon, something's gone wrong. Get help. So her faithful servant eventually gets help from the great god Enki, see previous polyatheism for more on him, Mm. and managed to get Inanna Ishtar released. But there's a law of conservation of souls in the underworld. It's like in the opening of Raiders of the Lost Ark, when he takes the statue off, but he needs to replace it with something else. Yep. So Inanna Ishtar can go, but only if someone else takes her place. So she goes around from God to God asking them to help her out, and they all say no. Doesn't seem like a very good deal for them. It's really not. So this would be hell, right? Yeah. Right. Uh, Hanging from a nail? Uh, What do I look, Filipino? (laughs) Oh. We're going to get mail. (laughs) We're going to get mail. Wow. (laughs) Then she finds her beloved husband, who's been living it up while she's dangling from a hook in hell. Uh, Demuzi Tammuz has hardly even noticed that his wife is gone. He's been drinking and cavorting inappropriately, according to at least one source, with his own sister. Mm. This pisses Inanna Ishtar right off, and she sends the demons to grab Demuzi Tammuz. After nearly escaping a couple of times with the help of his sister... According to another source, an old woman, the demons nab him and bring him to the underworld. But there's a sudden reversal. Inanna Ishtar feels bad and mourns the death of her husband, which leads to the abominable ceremony mourning the death of Demuzi Tammuz mentioned in Ezekiel. Even though she was awfully upset with her husband, losing him forever is still too hard for Inanna Ishtar, So she alters the deal, 
pray she will not alter it further. It's like a Clinton thing. <laughs> it is. <laughs> and decides that Demuzi Tammuz can spend half of the year in the underworld and his sister can take the other half, oh. which is not a great way to treat your sister-in-law, but so it goes. So it's a e- timeshare. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Each fall, Inanna Ishtar mourns the loss of her husband for six months, and in spring, Demuzi Tammuz leaves the land of the dead, and Inanna Ishtar celebrates the rebirth of her husband, giving us the cycle of the seasons. The story of Inanna Ishtar... And Demuzi Tammuz may end there for the Mesopotamians, but other cultures picked it up and ran with it. In Greece, for example, Inanna Ishtar becomes the love goddess Aphrodite, mm. and Demuzi Tammuz becomes the hunky Adonis. The story of Demuzi Tammuz is just one more tale of a god resurrected in the spring after a descent into the land of the dead, and Demuzi Tammuz is just one more god worth not believing in and that's going to do it for us this week until next time send your questions comments challenges and so forth to doubtcast at gmail.com join us on our discussion forum at doubtcast.forummotion.net find us on the facebook and the twitter at slash doubtcast or you can go to zazzle.com slash doubtcast and pick up some of our doubtcast swag, including the new I've Got Sheber Fever shirts. Yeah, burn them all. And inspired by Luke from last podcast, Science Wins and Science Wins Bitches, which was already purchased. We have sold Science Wins Bitches shirts. Awesome. Makes me very happy. Uh, if we you need bumper stickers now. <laughs> yeah, totally. Well, that that's coming. Um, <laughs> if you like the show, please write us a nice review on iTunes or whatever podcast aggregator you use. Um, until next time, thanks for listening. We'll be back in a couple of weeks. Make sure you keep sending in your logo submissions. We will be posting those on the forum soon. We've got some really excellent ones. We've got some very good ones already, but keep sending them in. Um, we'll whittle it down and then um, let you, the listeners, take a vote. So we'll be back in a couple of weeks with more Reasonable Doubts, your skeptical guide to religion. To catch up on past Reasonable Doubts episodes or to email your questions or comments, check out www.doubtcast.org. Reasonable Doubts is a production of WPRR Reality Radio. You can find out more about Reality Radio at publicrealityradio.org. Reasonable Doubts theme music is performed by Love Fossil and used with permission. Polytheism. Polytheism.